The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily reflect the official position of the host, other guests, or any affiliated entities. Each participant is responsible for their own statements and opinions. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. Hola, bien chata! Welcome to another edition of High Trust, Low Contact, Episode 5, Where Did All the Justice Go? I'm your host, El Chaco, and I've got with me tonight another awesome guest. He's the internet's favorite lawyer and the greatest law splater in the world. He's none other than Mr. Nick Ricada. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks for coming on, buddy. How's it been? Yeah, man, it's been great. Oh my god, it's like a NASCAR car here. <laughs> it's like it's like Europe, European League hockey in here with all the uh, with all the stuff here. I'm trying to get everybody off of YouTube uh, because I you said before that you you said it's not that hard to stay on YouTube, um, but in the past you had a point in time where you were briefly kicked off of YouTube. Is that correct? Well, yeah. I mean, when you uh, when you anger a bunch of um, people <laughs> that are, <laughs> that are have a, a certain characteristic that makes them super special uh, you're you're prone to you're prone to a mass flagging campaign but but ultimately like um it's it's not super hard to stay on youtube uh, so long as you're willing to make certain compromises that you're aware of i mean that's the the follow up to that statement right like you obviously don't have full free speech on youtube but um most things they let you get away with. It's it's just the things that they get you with are always kind of like, wait, like that? That's it? Okay, okay I got it. Um, but yeah, but I, I do recommend people like build platforms off of YouTube, especially starting out now because Absolutely. Uh, the, alt, the alt platforms are, you know, they've got great interfaces. They're getting better. Um, they've got more innovative uh, people on their teams and really they're they're the future because youtube will continue to clamp down on speech well it's interesting because like i at one point in time on my former podcast here's what i don't get uh we got kicked off of i think it was on apple itunes for a little while and <laughs> it was because we got we got flagged uh you know using using the naughty words and we learned after the fact you have to hit that little explicit content button or else you're going to get in real trouble. So, I mean, it's all about playing by the rules and all that kind of stuff. But it's funny because when you talk about compromises, we have to decide when we go and launch a podcast or launch a show like this, what kind of compromises are we ready to make? And, you know, when it comes to injustice fairness it's it's the rules don't apply to everybody the same way you know it, it seems to be going i mean i know that there's a lot of times where people on the right claim that the right is getting banned and then there's people on the left claiming that the left is getting banned but the question i have is is, is at what point in time are they going to kind of go back through the back catalog and and just start just start ripping you apart and is is that kind of what happened to you or what what exactly what, no, kind of, my, what, what was it? My, my demise is a multi-staged thing. Um, first, it was, uh, 
is at the height of COVID. Um, well, I, I should say that the height of the come down from COVID as the, the country was collectively, collectively shuddering in the, in the post uh, euphoric state. And um, Biden had decided that they were going to uh, start letting school children go back to school because the CDC had come out with data that said that, you know, kids really didn't transmit COVID very much, not in the same way and, and effectiveness that adults did. So it's the, probably OK to bring them back to schools. And they had, you know, there were some studies backing up the fact that uh, the school shutdowns didn't really prevent the spread of COVID in the way that they they alleged that they would originally and I just happened to agree that that was, I said, yeah, you know, we've known this for a while. I'm glad they're finally coming around. I agree that the president is making this move, but they had this dumb policy in place at the time where if you disagreed with the CDC's publications, then, um, then you got uh, a strike. And since even though the president who cited the CDC on this topic uh, was talking about it in the video, and I was merely agreeing with the policy. The CDC hadn't officially updated its published website yet, so I got a strike, and that was uh, that was my first my first strike on YouTube. Uh, your warning strike, and then after that um, came a, a couple different things. I got flagged for uh, encouraging and glorifying violence, which was really weird because uh, what I showed is a video of a mall fight that happened in Australia between a, mm -hmm. a, a couple groups of youths. One was pursuing the other. And uh, one of the guys from the group being pursued turned around kind of like, you know, ch puff chest uh, at the other people. And a guy came up to him and he just goes, and it was like instant. And he got, uh, he got his throat slashed. And um, he stands oh, there for a minute and all of a sudden uh, blood kind of sprays out and he drops and dies. Like in, it's like 10, 15 seconds. Very Obviously fast. you cheered it on and you were just playing it on replay and telling all of your <laughs> viewers to do exactly the same thing. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, of, of course. Uh, no, what I, what I did was I warned people in advance that this is going to happen. The video is graphic. Mm -hmm. You know, someone was going to, to die on, on camera. And if you don't want to see that, please like turn away. I'll, I'll keep it to this, like, uh, 45 seconds or so of video and we're not going to like belabor this thing, but you got to see how this happens. And then I went on to talk about uh, the horrors of young men's pride and how many young men end up dying from these foolish uh, prideful things. I mean, you, you have guys now who uh, you step on shoes in the wrong city, right? Like you're in a club or whatever, you step on someone's shoes, you get knifed, punched, shot, whatever it is. And it's this weird pride and, and it's not a pride in anything worth having pride in. it's just this idea that you deserve some level of respect and that even if someone incidentally or accidentally infringes it uh your life is now forfeit and so the the concept was to you know just kind of um muse on that subject and and my friend and i had just talked about it a couple days before as well so i thought it was appropriate that this had happened and was an opportunity to show the the risks of of young men's pride and, and how it has killed so many people, you know, well before their ability to impact the world in a great way. And then um, the final two strikes came as a one-two punch uh, over this weirdo um, that I, I won't mention, but a, a member of the trans community. Um, member of the trans community who was uh, being called out at the time for uh, allegedly, admittedly providing... Um, access or avenues to hormone therapy to minors 
without parental consent, without doctor input or anything like that. Teaching them how to acquire these from third world country factories or even, uh, you know, promoting a website um, and, and donating money to a website that uh, had lessons on how to make your own hormone replacement therapies at home. I found this to be appalling, obviously. I, I don't care about uh, the trans community. Once you're 18 and you've reached the age of consent um, for, you know, pretty much everything except for drinking, you know, I, I'm fine. Like, you want to chop stuff off, put stuff on. You want to add arms, legs. I don't care. Be Spider-Man, Dr. Octopus. Doesn't bother me at all. Uh, if you want to identify in whatever way, like I may not agree with your life choices, but I'm not here mm -hmm. to stop you, right? Like I'm a libertarian. Um, so I, you know, I made that pretty clear, but I also, uh, I, you know, I have the saying that I believe maps belong on the wall. Like I think maps are great. Like cartography is an excellent sort of activity and the wall is just a great place to put a map uh, from time to time when you encounter them. And so, you know, I, I said that a map belonged on the wall and, and that this person could go on the wall with the maps uh, and then uh, that got actually distorted and um, mm. words were added to what I said, which was not true. Um, they alleged that I had suggested this person should be shot in the head and executed. And there was a mess. Oh, because that's Bolshevik language. And that's how Bolsheviks speak. Right. Because they always say, like, you know, the the progressives get the bullet first or whatever. That That's that's one of their there's talking points when when yeah, there's a revolution. I, right. I guess, of course, uh, I do not actually believe in political violence. I've stated it a billion Neither times. Do I. Um, yeah. and, and so I would never suggest such a thing like that. I just believe that, uh, you know, there's a metaphor for social ostracism and criticism of, of what people do uh, and that, that we can have those metaphors and that's appropriate. And I, th I think anybody who interferes with uh, and, and proceeds to end up, you know, encouraging the sterilization of, of minors um, you know, prior to their ability to appropriately consider and make these decisions, uh, I, I deliver, I, I have deemed those people worthy of sufficient social ridicule and ostracism that we should, we should call that out. Um, but again, that got distorted into me uh, threatening to murder someone, which is weird because those words never left my mouth uh, at all or even entered my mind. But um, that was mass flag to YouTube. There's a massive Twitter campaign about it. And uh, there was a, a campaign to get me disbarred. I received 44 ethics complaints in one day wow. on the subject as well. How'd that uh, go? None of, oh, fine. None of them stuck. Uh, they, they all got dismissed because it was nonsense, right? Like, Right, right. So you still have justice I, in Minnesota, correct? Like no. You, you still have a... Let's no, be very no. clear. No, there's okay, not okay, justice okay. in Minnesota. But uh, there, there is still the ability to um, you know, have a little bit of free speech as an attorney, so long as you're not... Uh, actively practicing on a specific case at the time you make a statement. Since, you know, these statements were made as, as a broadcaster, not attached to any case or representation that I was working on at the time. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so, you know, I was like, well, first of all, I didn't say the really nasty part of what they're claiming, but even if mm. I did, you know, I would have the freedom to say this under the rules uh, because I, there is still a first amendment. Um, but that being said, I didn't say this thing. This is an organized campaign. And they could tell, right? Because they got all the, they compiled all of the ethics complaints into one, um, mm. you know, and said, here's a representative statement. A to laundry list. Things. Yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, and combine them all. And so then uh, that, that ended up going away, of course, because again, uh, you, you do have a first amendment, right. And the, uh, the board. So Minnesota um, does not have 
they have a bar association, but it's not mandatory, right? So the Minnesota State Bar Association has nothing to do with licensure at all. It's just a professional organization like, uh, like any other. And so, um, you know, they're not in control of that. So the, the licensing board is actually run under the Supreme Court of Minnesota. They oversee it and they appoint uh, people to, to do that. So they're a government entity. So you have mm -hmm. First Amendment protections. If they strip you of your law license, you can actually, especially over speech issue, you can sue them. Um, you can sue them federally for it. Uh, you, can, you can actually fight for your constitutional rights. Uh, thankfully, I haven't ever had to do that, but I do remind them of that every time this comes up. Uh, because yes, like, look, you have that right. I'm, I'm a broadcaster. I'm in yeah. some ways uh, a newscaster, or a journalist. Um, and also I just have that general First Amendment right. And attorneys don't forfeit that. If I'm representing someone in a case, there are rules of decorum, rules of the court that I have to follow. But I'm not representing people uh, at the moment. Like I'm licensed to, but I, I don't do it. I do. I do this. This is my uh, my job right now. And if I ever choose to represent someone, great. And I'll have to make sure that my speech is carefully segregated. But for now, I don't, I don't need to do any of that at all. And um, that's held up pretty well. Uh, so, but yeah, that all hit at once, um, this idea. Uh, well, they, that was my second strike, sorry. And then mm -hmm. in my third strike, I mentioned that it was interesting that these people uh, did this massive campaign of uh, falsely stating what I said um, to figure. try and get me disbarred. And I, I said that it was... Uh, it's pretty funny because when you when you do that, when you report that, your name and address is released to me. And ah, uh, so you, I was like, you know, they dox themselves. I was like, it's <laughs> uh, it's it's funny because like you have now given me this information, and YouTube determined that I was um, threatening to dox people, which uh, I did not threaten to dox a single person. I did read their names though online. Mm -hmm. Because well, and it was uh, public. It was public domain at that point. Correct. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's you go. a public piece of information. It is a name of someone who has falsely accused me of something. I think I have every right to read that name. I did not read an address, Absolutely. no jobs. I couldn't attach them to a screen name or anything weird like that. It's like these 44 people sent in a false complaint about me to try and get me disbarred. There's no legal action I can take against them for it. They have a right to make a complaint. Uh, they, they get to lie. They're protected in that lie, but um, you know, they were out bragging on Twitter about what they did. And so it's like, well, uh, here you go. Here's the, here's the names of the people who did it. Thank you. I have defeated your claim. And YouTube uh, briefly considered that to be doxing. Um, and that's when my channel was terminated. I was able to get those strikes uh, undone in the long run, but it was, um, it took uh, a lot of effort um, from people helping me out, uh, boosting the message because it was, it was clearly a coordinated harassment campaign, which is a violation of YouTube's and Twitter's terms mm -hmm. of service. Um, even though those users who do it are never punished for it, which is amazing. Like they'll violate the terms. Uh, it's, it's literally, it's you can, weird. you can have your account removed, but uh, they're never punished for it. But, they will remove the the false punishments that get attached to you. So thankfully, uh, my my rep was able to help me out. And uh, the Twitter campaign was really the biggest part of that, though. Um, I, I had thousands of people Good. Uh, hitting, tagging Great. YouTube. And, and someone from inside Google actually sent me uh, a memo that was not for external release that said, um, we've Whoa. been getting reports that, that there was a, a false flagging event against this channel. They informed Team YouTube on Twitter to not make any public statements about it while they did an internal investigation. And that's when my rep and I 
uh, put together a case of all these people gloating and talking about it and allowed us to show this This was clearly an organized campaign. Um, the statements were clearly false. And the organizer of the campaign actually very, very kindly provided us with a wonderful quote from, um, I think it's from American Psycho, that said, uh, my enemies are ontologically evil, so any action I take against them is completely justified. So I pointed out that, you know, they had lied and misrepresented what I said, and they did so yeah. intentionally because they determined that it was I was calumny, bad. you know, so it, it's brutal. Great. So, so but, uh, for, yeah. I, I want to welcome all of your, your crowd that just showed up today. Uh, this is great. We got a very lively chat tonight and I, um, I want to, to preface this by stating like, so you're in the United States and I'm right now I reside in Paraguay. Um, but I'm. I'm actually a Canadian citizen. And so when I look back about potentially going home <laughs> at some point in time, Canada is not the same as the United States. The United States is, uh, it's, you got free speech. We don't. Yeah. Uh, it, that's one of the biggest things that people get wrong about Canada, free speech. So one of my good friends back in Canada is a guy by the name of John Carpe. And John Carpe is the founder of what's uh, Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. And what he has, he's actually served time. Uh, he, he was put in, he was put in jail for, he was having a similar against him. And what he did is he, if I get this correctly, he hired private investigators to go, people that were shut in, one of them ended up being a judge. And you can't do that. You can't have a, a judge trailed or, or anything like that. So he ended up going and serving in jail. But it, it, it leaves this impression that for, for, for Canadians especially, we've got new laws in Canada that state, well, for example, uh, we have things like uh, they've just put in a law about um, Historical re revisionism. I'm going to put that in the, ni the nicest way possible. Uh, if you <laughs> yeah. are to uh, speak in a in a in a non-approved way about a historical event or two, uh, you can be imprisoned for that. Um, when we talk about the trans community, there is a father in Canada who had to serve time because he misgendered, misidentified his own daughter who wanted to be identified as his son. And, and so I look at this grand stage right now and I look at things and I'm thinking to myself, you know, why I wanted to have the topic of where is all the justice gone? You cover legal proceedings all over the, all over the country. And one of the things that I have admired is, is that you're able to kind of make a good commentary on different rulings here and there. You're allowed to do so. Right. And in, in, in the course of, cause I've known you now since what, 2016 is when we, we, uh, we connected probably back in 2016, way before your, your channel was, your channel went live in what, 2017 or 2018? Uh, my channel went live November of 2017. Wow. Okay. So, so, uh, in so that we were, period of time, we were hanging out in we'll go ahead. 20, I think we were hanging out, um, or, or chatting, you know, 2014 or 2015. I can't remember. I Maybe. think it was, 
I can't remember if it was before I finished law school or not, but it was close. Um, I it might was around have just that time. Finished. Yeah. And so on on our old podcast, when I started it, we had a lot of references to Nick Ricada as our show's lawyer, <laughs> and which was, you know, it was mostly a joke. But at the same time, I did run into my own doxing issues and I had my own enemies. It was on a minor scale compared to yours. We didn't we didn't get tossed from uh, from most platforms, although I did have the issue with the iTunes thing, which I believed was a, a flagging campaign from a certain player that won't be named. But the, the, the thing that I have admired, because I, I can't, I, you cover a lot of court cases. And I know for a fact, for example, I was watching very intently with the Kyle Rittenhouse case. And what was really great for for a Canadian like myself was to see you and Viva Fry connect uh, through that through that or, ordeal. And you, you can learn so much about watching Nick's channel about about legal proceedings, what is allowed, what isn't allowed. But have you noticed in some of these things, because especially in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, when I was watching that, you had a lot of stuff to say about the prosecutor. And, oh, yeah. and the methods that the <laughs> prosecutor was using. Yeah, and I'll so, say it again. Binger's a pile of garbage. Get wrecked, Binger. Exactly, exactly. So, so the thing was is that I honestly was watching that whole thing. And I thought he was going to lose. Not because he should lose. Right. But because, you know, I, I watched a lot of stuff with the Derek Chauvin trial. I've seen how they've proceeded with, the uh, events of the sixth day of the year uh, in uh, 20, what was that? 2021. Right. And I, I have to ask you in following all of these different cases, are you changed in any way? Are you, are you, you, what is your confidence level in terms of justice in the United States? Is justice being served or is there something kind of messy going on right now it's a that's a tough question um the the question is has justice been served for a very long time um and and this is a subject that gets really tough to talk about in um how do i how do i put this politely uh more right-leaning circles and more conservative circles because uh conservatives and and the right in general have had this uh sort of law and order conditioning that's been um, pushed upon them, uh, automatic respect for police, automatic respect for prosecutors, automatic distrust of people accused. We've forgotten that due process is supposed to come before an assumption of guilt. And in fact, we are commanded by the Constitution to presume the innocence of, uh, of parties until due process is served. Um, that is that is this lost thing on the right for most of my life. And so I started noticing about the time I finished law school and and looking around and, and then eventually practicing in criminal law and, and having more exposure to the system was that um, justice, uh, the things we were hearing about injustice from people that we didn't trust as, as conservatives or right-leaning libertarians or whatever, um, the people that we didn't trust talking about it, uh, weren't entirely wrong. They were wrong on things like um, 
race always being a factor, right? Or, uh, you know, uh, an intentional aspect of injustice was this, was this racial motivation. I don't, I don't buy into that. I think that uh, race can be an incidental factor, usually lumped in with other economic or demographic factors that can be involved, geographic factors, obviously. Uh, but, th- but this idea that every cop out there is like, I'm going to get the blacks is great. <laughs> like, that's insane. It's, it's and, a and, debunkable fact. It's just right, a de- and, debunkable fact. And, you know, I, I and, and, and a lot of times we see a lot of the reverse of that. I, I don't know if you've been covering it, but there's a recent case where there's a, a, a video. There's like video footage of a jewelry store owner in I think it was in California who got attacked and died. And yeah. yet somehow the the assailant got a hung jury. Are, have you followed this this case or or depending on the assailant's proclivities, a hung jury might be a fun time. No, I'm <laughs> I've not I've not followed that case. But um, just kind of topping off the the point I was making though is is that I don't uh, ever want to ascribe those sort of motivations without specific evidence. And in, in the same way, I don't want to you know ascribe guilt to a, well, a defendant video without, evidence. It's like right there. Yeah. You see the, the the striking of the guy. You see no, him die I mean, on camera. <laughs> I mean the racial. I mean the racial animus of cops is what I'm talking okay, about specifically. Yes. Yeah. That, so like, there were no cops in this video. So yes. Right. But certainly, uh, you will have cops with racial animus. Like, right? They're they're members of the population. It's going to happen some percentage of the time. But there's a there's a narrative that all cops and, and and all police departments have these racially instituted policies and stuff like that. I I throw that out the window. Um, but I look at those communities that are complaining, and I say, you know what though. Just because their conclusions about why this is happening is wrong doesn't mean it's not happening. And as you practice in the criminal justice system, you find it happening. You just find it happening to everybody. And you realize that the, the justice system has not been delivering justice. And no. uh, you, you become very, very cynical about these prosecutions and arrests. And um, the, the thing that's really blowing it out of the park right now is the prevalence of body cam footage and the prevalence of people having their own uh, cameras on. I mean, you, you see people who get pulled over, they've got a phone camera or a helmet camera found they're on a motorcycle and you watch the encounter and it's, it's shocking what people are going through at the hands of police. Um, so I saw a very mundane encounter where a guy was pulled over on a dirt bike because he was uh, riding his dirt bike street legal, had a registration on it. Uh, it was not displayed and that they got into that, but um, while he was on his bike, he stood up on the, the dirt bike pegs, right? It's, it's a dirt mm-hmm. bike. He wasn't like standing up and doing a stunt. He wasn't ramping off of anything. He's just driving down the road and he, he stands. He wasn't up going all GT, uh, GTA and like ramping right. off of the back of a truck. <laughs> right. The, the cop pulls him over for reckless driving. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, you can't be standing up. There are laws that say you have to be sitting down on motors. Like I'm like, which ones? Wait, wait, what what law is it written where you have to sit down on a motorcycle 100% of the time? Like he wasn't swerving. He wasn't causing any danger. But this guy just goes nuts. I'm like, this is an illegal stop, like clearly an illegal stop. And these types of things happen all the time. Um, we don't hear about them because most people don't die in these encounters. Right. But the real tragedy happens when you have an illegal stop. It escalates. Someone either gets wrongfully arrested and is forced to sue or someone does end up on the wrong side of, uh, of police violence. And they may even be instigating it. But we have to go to the underlying injustice of your rights being infringed because a cop either doesn't understand the law, is making up an excuse, has some reason why he wants to pull you over. 
And it it could be a non-demographic prejudice. Maybe the guy doesn't like mm-hmm. dirt bikes. Maybe the right. guy doesn't like uh, motorcycles. Got an argument Maybe he with just, his son earlier that day or something about it. Yeah. Right. Or worse yet, he just had to, and, and he actually kind of alluded to this. He said, we've had five motorcycle fatalities on this road in this spot in the past two weeks. It's like, well, we now know why he's pulling this guy over. It has nothing right. to do with some alleged law being broken. He thinks that guy's acting dangerously, in my opinion. Therefore, I'm going to dress him down, get him to be safe. I'm going to save this guy before I have to get the squeegee out and peel his skin off the ground again. Right. And, right. and that's not justice. That is not uh, any any semblance of it at all. That's a direct infringement of people's rights. And we've let this go so far. And, and again, I, I lay a lot of blame at the feet of the right. Because uh, growing up conservative and then libertarian, like I was conditioned in the exact same way. And um, and I think we're starting to see the light. I think the the sixth of the year that you mentioned earlier has been yes. a big wake up call. Um, justice, uh, whatever you think about um, the defendants there, uh, an honest and, and objective look at how they were treated is one of injustice, injustice, period. There, you can say, even if you agree with the outcomes, the treatment during the pendency of those cases was unjust. Uh, and in no well, other, no other places would we see that uh, it would be, it, there would be lawyers lined up out the door to get them out. Um, and the precedence that was left from that one. And I'm not even talking about a legal precedence. I'm talking mm-hmm. about the social precedent that was set after the sixth of the year. Like we have a, we have a, a mutual friend who was there. And I mean, he didn't go into the building or anything like that. But when he got home, he was terrified. He was terrified. I mean, constantly terrified. He had people turn on him. He had uh, co-workers like, where did you go? What did you do? All this kind of stuff. And Jimmy Johns, man. (laughs) (laughs) And I watched the whole thing live. I work from home. I have the ability. I got three monitors at all, all times. I had the like thing Hugh Jackman and Swordfish. Oh, it was great. Yeah, it was great. It was like, you know, it was surveillance on everything. I watched the whole thing. And the, the, the thing that killed me about it was the, the, the narrative afterwards was not what I saw. And there were so many times where I was watching the hearings. I was watching all those kind of things that came out afterwards. And I'm going, we all know that's not what happened there. We have the footage. The footage is there. The people who should know better have that footage. If I saw that footage, you saw that footage. And yep. there is no excuse to go against that footage because it's there. It's there. It's on the record. I watched people kindly walk inside the, the little barriers, the little the little walking barriers, just looking around, taking photos but the narrative didn't fit with that. So the narrative had to be that these people were killing people. And like we, we had the, the, the cop who, who died, but we right. were told he was killed on the site. But then later is when we got to find out, no, 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 no. Sorry. He died from an injury that he sustained later. Actually, I, let me, let me correct you. Um, there was no actual allegation that he, or, no confirmed allegation that he died from an injury that he sustained. Um, if I am not mistaken, he died from a cardiac arrest. Uh, I believe it was the next day. And there, that cardiac arrest was not tied to any specific thing. Now, we can, of course, you, you can reasonably infer that it's possible 
that the stress of the situation in that day had made him more likely to suffer that cardiac arrest. But we cannot conclusively state that that cardiac arrest was tied to any specific thing that day at all. And it could have just as reasonably happened um, on a mundane uh, afternoon for this guy. Like we, we don't have any evidence that he had elevated stress that was diagnosed or that he was uh, under some sort of monitoring following the events. It, it's all, um, it was all just left to be drawn as a conclusion. Someone we both know would call it lying and implying, right? They would create <laughs> yes. this, you, you create this narrative that is vague enough to allow people's imaginations to fill in the blanks. And it's always in the worst way possible. Well, this guy must have died because of what he dealt with. It's like, actually, no, cardiac arrest doesn't work that way. Um, no. 99% of the time, cardiac arrest just comes up for whatever reason, ticker stops, and you're done. Uh, that is that is as likely, if not more likely, to be what caused this guy's death than some sort of specific trauma from that day. And uh, But yeah, you're right. They, they, let us, they let the narrative run that he was killed um, by either directly at, at the time or by someone's, uh, you know, the result of someone's actions. It's like, well, where's the doctor's report on that, buddy? I, I know that Canada is the United States' hat, but do you follow some of the stuff that goes on in Canada? I mean, we are really falling apart up there. Well, I just watched them honor <laughs> war hero. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I, I do. I do a little bit. Um, I, I was monitoring the Jordan Peterson situation where he yeah. was um, he was mandated into reeducation that he had to pay for because he used uh, uh, he used some sort of no no language that was not approved by the Ministry of Speaking. Um, so there was there was that uh, the you know the the board of psychiatrists or psychiatrics or whatever. Uh, basically said, well, you're you're allowed to keep your license, but only on the condition that you go through this this reeducation to find out why you're so wrong. It's like I don't think that's how medicine works, but okay, um, you know, I, I I follow stuff like that, but I really try to I try to stick with American issues when it comes to legality, justice, and liberty, uh, specifically because. I understand the American perspective and the American legal system's uh, proposed, <laughs> purported uh, perspective on the issue. With Canada, um, you know, I, I look at it and I go, they have no such thing as liberty. Like it, it, it does not no. exist. Um, no. But, but at the same time, I, I don't understand the underlying jurisprudence around it. So I, I don't try to comment uh, deep dive specifically, but generally, yeah, it's 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 horrifying to see. I can't imagine even visiting um or people have asked me to come up and do like a live show in canada i'm like if you watch <laughs> our pass yeah if, if you watch the live shows that i do in uh and, and upload to locals and stuff like there's no way uh we would be arrested <laughs> um if we if we did that same show i wonder sometimes because i've been very vocal about the um the the strategies involved with dealing with a certain health issue that came about in around late 2019 through 2020 and still seems to be going about its business. And for example, in Canada, I, again, my friend, John Carpe, who I, who I mentioned, who I'd like to introduce you, I'd like you guys to connect at some point in time. I, I believe think you guys would have a really good. I believe we've spoken by email. Um, okay. And I think he, I think he went to, <laughs> he went to jail or whatever, like right. Jail, yeah. But he's out. He's out. We're good. We're good. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
No, he seemed, uh, I, I know I was getting emails from um, that group and I, I believe either from him or maybe from like a, a co-director or someone like directly uh, affiliated with him about his situation. But it, it would have been a while back, obviously. Um, but yeah, yeah I, really, I believe we you guys have would really hit it off. Well, you guys would really hit it off. Well, he's a, uh, he's, uh, we met through my, uh, my child's school. Uh, we, our, our kids went to the same school together and, uh, we go to the same church and we, we ended up being poker buddies, um, oh, especially through the, uh, through, through the lockdowns. And so he was really good about explaining to us our rights about what we could or couldn't do, uh, what was legal and what wasn't legal. And, you know, Canada really suspended a lot of rights, even before the trucker convoy, even before the trucker convoy, we were getting a lot of our rights completely suspended. And when I moved down here to Paraguay, because I saw the writing on the wall, I saw where, where everything was going. You've known me long enough. I'm a bit of a spaz. Sometimes I, I get a little bit paranoid <laughs> about things, <laughs> but, but I was right. Though. <laughs> yeah, but I was no, right. I, I called it right. I, I I got so many things right. Canada is absolutely gone to hell. And I I have family and friends, people I want to see there, but I don't know when I'm going to go back. I don't know right. when I'm going, going back. And in Paraguay, it's very different. Uh, yes, there is freedom of speech. It is not, you know, it's not as crazy as some people might think Paraguay is. But at the same time, our legal system down here is even more wacky. So we don't even have a jury system down here. Uh, it's yeah. it's just judges. <laughs> it's right. so so Canada and I believe the United States was mostly built upon the English, the British legal system, whereas mm -hmm. Paraguay was built off of this legal system in Spain. So the problem mm -hmm. with it, it's got this two folds thing going on where basically um you get a judge. If the judge is somebody's cousin or uncle or something, you will, you know, you're, you're going to be playing with fire. So the best thing is to stay out of court, just stay out of the courtroom. But I think that's also really good advice pretty much anywhere in the world. You, you really don't want to be in court if you don't have to. Right. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter what is uh, happening with someone. Usually if they're involved in the legal system to the point where a court or court hearings or a trial are, are a possibility or, or even happening. Um, they're in about the most stressful time many people will be in, uh, you know, something, something drastic has happened that they either need to engage the court system for, or something has happened that they are being engaged by the court system for. And uh, even if you're completely uh, innocent of the, the charges or the claims, you know, you are on hold until that is borne out and it's not a fast process. But yeah, I think um, despite that being true, uh, I'd still choose the U.S. system over any other. Uh, you you alluded to that lovely uh, third world corruption possibility. And it's right. I mean, it, it goes beyond just uh, nepotism, right? Like there there are many systems oh, of money, uh, court, uh, pay to play all types of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Pay to play for everything. But um, so you, you always want to stay out of that system to the maximum extent possible. Uh, but that being said, you know, um, it, it's weird because in some places, even when you have like a, a corrupt court system um, and, and a messed up uh, judicial system, 
average people do have the ability to avoid those systems pretty well. If they're just, you know, they're, they're normal, relatively law-abiding citizens, uh, they, they can avoid those things. Um, the, the crazy thing about places like Canada and even the UK is while they ostensibly have more liberty-centric uh, systems than that, what they end up with are, are, is the opportunity for you to be on a broadcast of some sort, say something, and, you know, uh, go to jail for it. Like uh, Count Dankula, for example, making a video, a, a comedic video about a dog is suddenly um, offending so grossly this population of people that he needs to not only be fined, uh, but his his speech was so horrific that he needs to eventually go to jail for a period of time around it. And it's like that that's an insane proposition for most for most people who grew up, even people who grew up in non-American Western countries where this has become true, it had to kind of become true. The idea that you would you you know like uh, you'd be on the news and say something that wasn't a threat of violence or some terroristic threat, like but literally just something that you would you would portray as a joke and that you would be facing jail time as a real pros- uh, possibility it was is new. Um, in in those countries, and it it showed not that uh, these countries have their their legal systems have shifted so much, but it shows that their societal outlook has shifted sufficiently to expose the inherent lack of liberty that was in those systems. They had all believed they were in uh, classically liberal societies where you had these freedoms and protections. I mean, I've been I've been in hundreds of Facebook arguments uh, with with Brits who would assure me that, um, you know, the UK had the same free speeches and rights and same freedoms as the United States. And, and there are other countries just as free. And it's like, as, uh, as time has gone by and those, those walls have all been knocked down and shown to be falsehoods. It's like, you, you actually don't, we barely do. And mm-hmm. we have a better system than you guys. And, and now you've got people going to, to jail for speech left and right. The, the scariest thing to me in America is, is just seeing the, the social cheering on of what happened to the uh, January 6th people because it's like, well, you know what? Uh, this country was kind of founded on the idea that we got to question our government and we got to do so loudly and vigorously. And uh, some people may have gone too far. There, there are videos where there are people engaged in violence with, uh, with officers. Like we, we don't want to downplay the fact that that did occur at some points during this thing. And those people may need to be prosecuted for those things. But, but the nonviolent protesters receiving, 20 years for sedition and insurrection. It's like Ridiculous. the concepts behind that are it's and, and people are like, yeah, get them. It's like, get them brother. If the, if the shoe had fallen on the other foot and the other guy had been elected and you had gone and complained, you would never be saying get them in that scenario. Like that, that's a concept that is just lost on people. They're like my side won. Therefore it's like, no, no, no. That's the most dangerous thing because your side may not win next time. Well, what's what's really gotten me with the the just the last three years, just the just the last three years, is how many times I've seen organizations that should know better. Because um, my 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 day job is I work with publicly traded stocks and I do marketing for for them, and I have to deal with the securities commissions all the time. And so there are very strict rules about what we can or can't say. So, right. for example, I've I've got. I've got pharmaceutical companies that are part of part of my clientele. And we have to be extremely careful about how we talk about 
the effectiveness or the safety of their products. And so the thing is, is that what I watched in the last three years is I watched full, full stop, just laws being broken by, by the government itself with no repercussions, none whatsoever. The fact that they're saying they're coming out and they were saying on billboards, like, are you worried or are you worried about which injection you're going to take or not? Don't worry. They're all safe and effective. And I'm, I'm like, I have clients who have gone from $9 stocks to a nine cent stock overnight with a single adverse event. And yet you're able to say this. You're not legally able to I'm not legally able to say that, but somehow they just did. Because the thing is, is there were laws being broken all over the place and nobody cared because the, the courts wouldn't take the cases. And so there were cases, especially in Canada, where they were they were be they would be saying this is illegal. You can't be doing this. You can't discriminate against this type of employee. You can't do this or that. Didn't matter. The courts wouldn't hear them. And what I've also seen is is, is this stuffing the courts with bought and paid for judges and trumpeting the merit the narrative. And so what I. So this show is called High Trust, Low Context. And I want to say for, 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 for a matter of fact, I grew up in a high trust society, but I watched it become a low trust society. And my trust in the legal system couldn't be lower, especially if I go back to Canada, because I don't think I'm going to get a fair day in court if I need to. So I, I guess the question I want to ask you is where is your trust level at right now with the legal system in the United States? You can start with Minnesota, but I think on a broader, <laughs> broader state, I'd love to hear where do you where do you stand? Like if you know you've got a slam the slammed shut case, is it actually a slam dunk case these days? Because it seems no. to be not the case. Yeah, uh, short answer: No, it's there. There is no such thing, um, especially once you get to a jury as a slam dunk case, and that has its. Uh, that has its benefits and downsides. Um, I've, I've talked about this in the context of the Johnny Depp trial, for example. Um, Johnny Depp's outcome, I agree with, to be very clear on this. Uh, Johnny Depp's outcome on his defamation case against Amber Heard, I agree with his victory and I agree with the awards. Uh, the thing that doesn't really agree with those is the legal system. Um, right. in, in many ways... His, uh, his outcome is based on the very specific and narrow uh, terms of lawsuit uh, would not be legally sustainable. Um, what happened was you got this ability to get a jury and for his legal team to convince the jury of what is true, okay? That mm -hmm. the statements made by Amber Heard in this op-ed that she published incorporated all of the defamatory statements and actions that she had made from, I think, 2016 on. But that's not how defamation is supposed to work. Um, mm. Defamation is supposed to be this statement has to cause this damage. It has to be false. You know, it has to be about the person and delivered with the requisite level of knowledge of the falsity or, you know, uh, or negligence if they're not a public figure. So you have to fulfill those elements on the alleged statements. With a jury, you're able to weave a web and show them like these statements, 
you know, are here, but what they mean is all of this stuff. They're hearkening back to him being an abuser. They're hearkening back to this idea that she created uh, a public narrative about this guy that he was beating her while the entire time she was actually abusing him. It's an excellent legal mm. strategy, but it's, you know, it's not, it's not a hundred percent on the up and up legally. You know, they've, they've, uh, they've uh, settled out their, um, the appeal and all that stuff. And, and it's done now. So it is, it is cemented. It's, it's fine. Um, and that's an advantage of not having a slam dunk legal case or, or a system that honors what's called a slam dunk legal case, because in, in reality, um, it'd be very hard to suggest that the three statements alleged are the things that caused the damage to Johnny Depp. Um, it's a whole bunch of other stuff that, that did. And those three statements highlighted and reminded the public of it. Okay. So, um, you know, that's one instance in that way. Uh, but, but really it kind of depends on, on what the subject is, what the topic is. And it doesn't really matter what your level of trust is in the United States system, because it is still uh, ultimately probably the preferable legal system in the world to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's, if it's you guys exceeding- would take me, I'd move there, but you won't take me. I come from the wrong border. So <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Look, crawl through some razor wire, get a tan. Um, no, it's uh, but the, but there is this, you know, there's this frustrating aspect of it. It's a slow process. It's very expensive. It's bogged down by uh, ludicrous rules, overpriced lawyers um, and, and judges who are um, either unwilling to issue correct uh, and direct rulings on the underlying issues and getting the case through the courts, or frankly, um, the good and the bad part of elected judges is elected judges don't always know the law. And depending on where you are, you will have judges who have never dealt with um, issues that are before them. And they get these novel issues and they, they get them, uh, they get them wrong with a level of frequency that that's kind of alarming to some people. So um, all of that combined means. And can those uh, elections I, be gamed? Can they be gamed? Sort of. Well, any election, any election can be yeah, gamed, but the, mean, there, there, there are tons of restrictions on judge elections. And so uh, the way that they're often gamed, as it were, is, is very simple. They have a huge limit on the amount they can spend um, for their own elections. Uh, many states, they're not allowed to, uh, name a party affiliation, and they're often not allowed to comment on, mm-hmm. um, you know, popular legal issues and how they might rule on them. So people are left with this duty of of trying to research how a judge has ruled on particular issues. And most, uh, if they've been a judge in the past, uh, and they're not just a, a new, like an attorney being, because um, a lot of times it's a prominent or popular attorney who's uh, been, um, is running for the, the office. But uh, if you can even research their decisions, you know, you have to draw from their conclusions how they might rule in the future. It's not very good. Uh, it's not a very good method to do so. And it's it's out of access for most people. The way they game it is very simple. Uh, usually a judge retires and a recess appointment is made by the governor to put a judge in that spot. And then they run as an incumbent and incumbent judges win almost every single election unless there's a massive public controversy okay. about some ruling or some activity uh, because you know, you, you can't research. So you're like, well, I mean, things seem to be going well. I guess I'll vote for the incumbent. I don't know who the other guy is. Uh, and you, in reality, you don't know who right. either are. There, there's almost no way to actually research this stuff. So um, you, you get that level of gaming is very common in elected judges. But 
the other option is just appointed judges, which is the same darn system. So it's like, what, uh, what's the better outcome? I, I don't know on that. In, in both of them, you're not guaranteed that the judge is going to have any particular legal knowledge. Uh, remember that uh, a practicing lawyer is really going to be an expert in somewhere between one and five uh, areas of law. And there are uh, hundreds of different areas of law. Once they become a judge, um, that is going to expand to a uh, weekly uh, breadth of 50 plus areas of law uh, and that they only know a small percentage of. Um, they're going to be uh, able to research them as any lawyer would, but they're not going to have the expertise in those fields of law to, to like be able to confidently and quickly make these rulings. They're relying on clerks. They're relying on the arguments before them uh, to do it. And, and they have very little prior basis for it. I'm, I'm not saying that judges are bad at their jobs. Uh, some of them obviously are. Some of them no, obviously aren't. No, no, that's aren't, not what but, we're implying. <laughs> but it's just, it's just a very right. difficult position to be in. It's like, well, I'm an electrical engineer. It's like, okay, well, we got a civil engineering question. Now we have, uh, you know, a mechanical engineering question, a materials engineering <laughs> question, an astrophysics engineering question, an aerospace engineering question. It's like, okay, well, like I, I know how to do this part. And it's like, well, you have, you have the knowledge right. to figure out how to do all this other stuff because you know math. It's like, oh, okay, that's how that works, right? Like it's the same thing for judges. So <clears throat> it's, it's a tough position. So I want to actually take it back a little bit because you had mentioned about the uh, defamation in the in the case of uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, and you were mm -hmm. stating that that that's not what defamation is. A lot of people don't realize legal language is a whole other language of its own. So what is in the common parlance, uh, you know, like what people use the term for, isn't always what the court recognizes it, it, it as. And, you know, I know, so you mentioned about being a libertarian, but in my past, I was more libertarian. And I remember used to watch a lot of those videos about like, you know, what happens if you get stopped by the cops? What are your rights? What do you do? What, you know, all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. I remember somebody did a, a video about the word understand, <laughs> yeah. right? Like the word under, do you understand? And that the word understand means something completely different than comprehend. And that blew my mind because I've got I've got family members who are uh, in the legal system and work work with lawyers work work in that in that uh, realm. We talk about them like there are words that don't mean the same in the English language as they do in what is it the Red Book or the 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 uh, law book? What's the word? Blacks. What's the the, def, the legal definition book? Black's law. It's there Blacks, it is. There Black's legal de de and so, dictionary. Yeah. So a lot of times people tripped up on that. And I guess then the question is, are those definitions holding up when you see something like the, the defamation case yourself that technically doesn't fit that definition as the legal definition? Are you seeing more of that where people are misinterpreting the definition of legal terms these days? Um, it, it re that's really depending on the context, uh, of, of how this is happening. Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember what case that was, but yes, the, the definition of understand that was at issue was literally to stand under something rather than to comprehend something, uh, very, yeah. very kind of weird old usage of the, the word, but, um, the, 
where we see the most or where I see the most um, intentional or incidental misuse of of words, terms of art or just common understood words is uh, is with this regulatory system and structure that we have and this uh, legal principle called Chevron deference, which is on the butcher's block in the next Supreme Court session uh, as a, as a brief uh, recap, Chevron was a was a case in which um, you know the EPA, I believe, is regulating chemicals. Uh, Chevron being a petroleum company, and um, the Chevron mm-hmm. had asserted that it's uh, the chemicals at question were not actually covered under the Environmental Protection Act, uh, and the EPA asserted that their expertise allowed them to make determinations about what chemicals uh, that were not specifically listed were sufficiently. Uh, falling under the definition um, and that their uh, their experts could use these uh, this power of uh, lumping things under an umbrella definition to generate law and, and legal concepts. They could effectively ban chemicals that were not banned because they're the same thing with some mild difference in their structure. Um, that has mm. now morphed over time into uh, organizations like the ATF Uh, defining what a firearm is and have it be nothing of the sort, right? Like a, uh, a a suppressor is a firearm uh, according to the ATF, right? Which is a ludicrous thing to say. A suppressor on its own is a cylinder of metal. It cannot fire a bullet. It it can't not chamber around none of the actual, right? Yeah. None of the actual mechanisms for a a firearm exist um, in that, in that item. And in the same way, uh, you know, a bump stock or a pistol brace, or these things are getting categorized as firearms because the ATF says, well, we have the ability to determine that these are firearms as contemplated by the national firearms uh, act and Chevron deference has effectively required the courts to say, yeah, that's right. Because we defer to your expertise. Um, Chevron deference has its purpose in some regulatory schema, right? Like the one mentioned with Chevron, while I'm not uh, a big favor of regulations uh, in, in general, you can understand where if you have petroleum, a petroleum byproduct with a specific chemical formula, and then um, you swap out like one carbon atom, uh, and now you have an ionized version of the same thing that has the same effective uh, impact on the environment but they're trying to get around it by by this minor chemical alteration. We can see where that would be a problem. And you cannot have Congress come in every single day. Well, in theory, you can't have Congress come in every single day and, <laughs> and having to add new chemicals to list. But maybe we should because that's their actual job. Like, uh, So in, in my opinion, I, w- I would love to see Congress be forced to do that. But uh, we, we have this idea of practicable government or practical government, however you want to look at it, where it's like, well, that would really bog things down. I'm like, yes, perfect. Bog it down. It, the government's <laughs> supposed to be slow, plotting. And well, you're change. a regulator. Yeah. If you're going to regulate, do it properly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But but, but do like, you see if, a bit of a slippery slope happening? Like Huge. With, yeah. If, well, if I mean, people aren't adhering to definitions as they are or they're meant to be like because I, I saw yeah, that in Canada, like definitions got really wonky and and like again, I, I I'm Catholic, and uh, we we talk a lot about like even Catholic catechisms of the modern era are written what we call eponized ambiguity, right? So so you write something in a way that the right might look at it one way, 
and the left might will look at it in another, but seeing the same. So do you see something like that happening when we're when we're kind of changing the definitions of things as we go along? Oh, absolutely. I mean, th this has been, um, you know, this has been a Supreme Court argument uh, forever. We see a lot of it in Second Amendment discussions as well, um, because you, you basically have a couple different judicial perspectives, uh, but you have like an originalist perspective, which says this is how uh, these words would have been read at the time that this thing was passed or adopted. Then you have the a muskets argument or it, it, no, so you would say in, uh, in, for example, if we're going to go with the Second Amendment, uh, and this is kind of the basis of the most recent Supreme Court decision, the Bruin decision, is what did they mean by uh, arms? Like, what, what did keeping and bearing arms mean in the context of this thing? It's like, well, like a, everything, right? Like a, from a knife to a sword to a stave or a, uh, like a stick, like Andrew Johnson had a beat stick. Or Andrew Jackson, sorry. He, yeah. had a, he had a beat stick that he would hit yeah. uh congressman Old with. Hickory. Um right, yeah. up to uh up to a musket or or they had repeating rifles, they were usually mounted or or a cannon or a warship. Like those are all arms, uh, as would be understood in 1791. And so we go, okay, well, arms mm -hmm. covers literally anything that can be uh utilized as a weapon is an arm. It can so we we don't go a suppressor. We go, well, <laughs> What we what we don't do is say that in 1791, arms was this specific list and they could not comprehend or contemplate that the list would ever change, right? We would understand that this is a representative selection of things in a category. The category is arms. So if you come up with mm -hmm. uh, a flay, a new flail or a different uh, length or, or curve of a saber and it gets called something else or or uh, the Bowie knife would be invented right uh, later than the adoption of the Second Amendment. The Bowie knife was a, a hybrid between a utility knife and effectively a sword that could be kept with you. It was long enough to shove up under a rib cage and into a heart, but it was also small enough that it, it wasn't bogging you down if you were riding or going through rough terrain. So, um, you know, they, they would not think of the Bowie knife as like not being contemplated as an arm. It clearly was. So in the same right. way as as rifles, uh, rifled barrels become more and more prevalent, as repeating rifles become more and more prevalent, as howitzers and other uh, and, and different types of cannons um, progress through technology, we cannot make some weird assertion that in 1791 they go, well, we would never have thought of that. Therefore, that doesn't exist. Um, that would be the originalist perspective. Now, a textualist perspective might be a little different. It might go, what is the actual definition of arms as is understood now? What, what are the possible textual outcomes of arms? And you, you literally get arms, right? But you also get arms as armaments and stuff like that. And then you try to interpret what the, uh, you know, what the, what is covered rationally. And then you get this other definition, um, this definition that, uh, that, uh, or this other judicial perspective that a lot of liberal justices apply, which is that the Constitution is living, breathing, and it, it morphs with society. And and even though the the language is cemented in a place and time, the understanding of that language is supposed to flow with uh, with the social norm and, and social understanding. So now we we get to arms, and it's like, well, what do we mean by arms? Well, we we might mean handguns. Uh, we we might mean some sort of hunting rifle or sporting rifle, but we don't really mean like a military type weapon. That seems very scary, and and certainly not explosives, because who would even use explosives outside of like a specific work environment? And it's like, well, you know that those are perspectives. Not all perspectives are created equal, in my opinion, and that one uh, that one is a big problem. And and a great 
representative of this is how we look at um, uh, execution under the Eighth Amendment as as cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, at the time of the mm. adoption of the Eighth Amendment, we were executing people uh, for every felony had execution as a possible outcome. And uh, there, there were only like six or seven felonies, though. Like you, you, the difference between now and then is massive. But also, we would execute uh, children as young as twelve years old um, in Whoa. in some states. Uh, there's okay. a, a recorded execution of a twelve year old. They haven't found any younger uh, at the time. But now, um, you know, the Supreme Court has decided over the years that cruel and unusual punishment includes the execution of anyone under the age of eighteen or anyone with a, a mental handicap or infirmity. And it's like, wait a minute. That's not at all what that meant. Like that's execution is not cruel or unusual. It's actually very usual. And the method of execution um, that we used uh, were often fairly brutal and those were not considered cruel. So it's like, what, what about uh, someone with, um, you know, schizophrenia or, or 70 IQ means that we can't execute them. That is particularly cruel or unusual when it would have been particularly usual and uncruel at the time. So you can see how the different applications to different amendments produce different outcomes. And, and frankly, some people on both sides of the aisle like those outcomes. My old thing mm. uh, is, uh, and, and I kind of, uh, I trend with how Scalia talked about the eighth amendment is this idea that uh, if there's no comp compulsion to have a death penalty by any state or federal government is very simple. If you want to not have a death penalty, you can just pass a law that says we don't do the death penalty. And the constitution right. is absolutely silent on it. Um, the constitution would have something to say if, uh, if it was, we have the death penalty and it will actually be a 16 day excruciating affair of flaying the skin off of people, right? Like that's <laughs> where we go. Well, that's a little strange, right? That's, that's, that's a seems little cruel. cruel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's where it would speak. It would never speak in the uh, in the government providing a greater protection for the citizenry. But people freaked out about it and they demanded that uh, the Supreme Court solve their concerns and fears. And and so those the, getting back to the question, the slippery slope argument is demonstrable throughout American history as uh, yes, it, it happens. Uh, and once you let that concept take hold, my entire problem with um with current uh, legislative and and Supreme Court uh, legislative statutory creation and Supreme Court jurisprudence and interpretation is that we have a system now where the entire purpose of amending the Constitution was to grow and change this document over time, but we've completely shunned and abdicated that thing and uh, just left it at the altar of these justices to do it for us. It it alleviates any political capital that needs to be um, that needs to be uh, expelled by a congressperson to say, nope, this is a bad enough problem in our society. There's enough political will to do this. We're going to pass an amendment because what we'll do is just instead may move case after case after case up to the Supreme Court and hope that eventually under the relentless barrage uh, of these cases, they'll they'll give an they'll give an opening that will allow us to then effectively create a constitutional amendment and and a great example of that was Roe versus Wade which was effectively the most protected freedom in the United States from 1973 uh, through uh 2022 um and if i remember you, correctly that one was that one was a very stretched definition of the word privacy wasn't it? It was. It was. Yeah, you they used it. You, they used privacy as the the reasoning behind that, which is it's it's, it's it, kind of ridiculous. It's, <laughs> it's, well, it's 
first of all, there, I'm there pro-life, no... so you know, of course, right. I'm going to be biased on this, but but the, you know, on on that topic, real quick, there there is no constitutional right to privacy as a general thing. That that's not a real thing. We have a right to security in our persons, papers, possessions under the Fourth Amendment. And then they had this general right to privacy uh, being built out of uh, the Ninth Amendment and then ultimately applied through the Fourteenth Amendment to all of the states. And and uh, this substantive due process right where, well, the government can't infringe your right of privacy without providing substantive due process on the infringement. And there was just no way to ever infringe on the right to privacy and bodily autonomy. But it's funny because if you look throughout history of the United States, um, there was always been, uh, there's no such thing as a right to medical privacy or bodily autonomy, right? Like you and I, um, if, if you have children that enter into the public school, they are forced to be vaccinated to some level. Like they, they just, Which is why they I homeschool. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. They, I got they, yeah. they have to be vaccinated. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Uh, try, try taking heroin. Like, shouldn't I have a right to medical In Canada, privacy? you can, I'm sure. <laughs> but, but, but in, in theory, right? Like, th this is people like look at this argument as ridiculous, but try taking heroin and assert that you have a right to medical privacy and bodily autonomy. Try getting a doctor to prescribe you heroin. Like, just go up and say, hey, doctor, I want heroin for pain relief and relaxation. And they'll go, you're insane, right? Not a chance will I do this to you. Uh, you just just go right. out and trip and then I'll give you fentanyl. But like, <laughs> just go, go fall on the sidewalk. Then I'll give you fentanyl. <laughs> but you're insane if you just come in here asking for it. Um, try taking any number for forever. Try just consuming marijuana or uh, certain alcohols. I mean, we, we prohibited mm -hmm. alcohol in this country. Th there's never been this right to bodily autonomy or medical privacy, except for pregnant women who want to terminate the pregnancy. That's it. Those are the only people who have ever had medical privacy or bodily autonomy as a right. And it was the most sacrosanct and protected right. You can, in, you can infringe on guns, speech. Uh, you can infringe on Fourth Amendment rights, due process rights, uh, your right to um, uh, you know, habeas corpus. You can infringe on every single right Accept that one, and it was held to the maximum. And that's just because some judges decided that they would. There's no constitutional amendment. There's no enumeration of this right. There's no articulation of anything even close, and there's no historical tradition of it. But that's the system that we've allowed to happen as we have let justices do this uh, and and to to build and mold the Constitution rather than forcing our representatives to do it. Uh, Thomas Jefferson at the time that the, I think it was Jefferson at the time that the constitution was signed suggested that in 30 years, the constitution would be so amended as to be a completely new document. That was the expectation that these guys had when they built in the amendment system. They're like, society's going to change. Political will will always be there to make these important changes. And then poof, Marbury versus Madison happens. And we, we don't have to do that ever. Uh, at, from that Chat's point happy on, that you just brought that one up, by the way. I'm I sure. know, I know, but but it, it, and again, you can love Marbury, Marbury versus Madison. It, it does make our government much more practicable and practical mm. and effective in in various ways um, and efficient. But remember, the most efficient government on in existence is just tyranny. Um, it's a tyranny is greatly efficient. You can just get whatever you want done uh, as the king. But but this this idea was here that. Um, you would have to go through this process and expend political will to advance this document and the concept of government with society. How many amendments are there? 28? 28 amendments in 250 years. 
Uh, and we're supposed to assume that those 28 amendments sufficiently advance this document to match modern society and ideas? Not a chance. We have, however, we do have a, uh, a, a, the, the Code of Federal Re Regulations is something like 230,000 pages um, of, of effectively law, regulations, definitions, and statements that make up law that you're supposed to follow. That's where we, uh, we allowed our governance and our ideas around it to follow society was through the administrative branch creating this Code of Federal Regulations that no one even knows how to look up until you go to law school. And uh, and you're supposed to follow all of those things to a T. Like, for example, if you go to the wrong restaurant that picked the wrong lobster out from the wrong sea at the wrong season, and it was a felony in that country to happen to harvest that lobster, and it goes and it gets cooked by a chef and fed to you, and you know, because they just get it off a crate, right? Like, it's like, right. oh, that's a good looking lobster. Gets fed to you in Vegas. I don't know. It's like a $400 lobster tail. It's big. And you eat it and you find out, oh, did you know that because your consumption of that illegally harvested lobster is a felony in that country that we You're have a federal accomplice. regulation. Yeah, yeah, we have a federal regulation that says that you need to be punished in the United States under the law of that foreign nation uh, because you, you violated that law. And you, in theory, could go to prison for eating lobster at a restaurant that you paid for. Like, um, and, and it gets like, that's an extreme example, but uh, there was a, you know, there was one Somebody of those will storage... play that card eventually. I'm sure that well, kind of thing. You know, there was one of those there... storage wars. Uh, there was a storage wars show, right. And they, they yeah, opened up one of the things and uh, there's a taxidermied animal that was an endangered species in a different country. And that one, uh, you know, that one was immediately confiscated. The second that the, the U S government found out that this taxidermied animal existed, it was illegal to sell it. So they would, they went and they confiscated this thing, even though these guys didn't even know what they were buying. And uh, if they had not turned it over, they would have been charged with a felony trafficking of, wow. of an endangered species. Wow. And it's, it's insane to think because of some other country's law that that's what happened. Um, or that's what could happen. And so when you get into, sure, it's, it's ridiculous for a lobster tail. You're probably not going to get prosecuted. You could, they could, they could. choose not yeah. to, <laughs> uh, but you, you could, but when it starts to get into something like, uh, again, a taxidermy, taxidermied animal, um, a, a gun that came from a country that you weren't aware of, maybe, maybe some gun, what if, what if Germany said that all, uh, all Nazi paraphernalia, uh, was actually effectively contraband from trade and would be part of the National Historical Society and all of it needed to be recouped uh, upon any any look of a transaction. The, the government would actually have the right of first refusal and the right to acquire it. So you're, you're a guy who collects like plates or something. You see some Nazi plates or trading cards at some uh, pawn shop and you're like, wow, that's kind of I'm out in Paraguay. I'm familiar with these. <laughs> they're all right. over the place. <laughs> they're, they're very like... They're, they're, they're everywhere. Um, and, and so you're like, wow, these are interesting plates or some, some old photos or an old, yeah. you know, a, a German soldier's uh, journal or something. And you buy it. And now uh, you are in violation of a German law because you've done this and the, Germany finds out about it. Cause you show up on like antique roadshow or something. And then uh, they demand, they demand that to be returned or, or you get a felony charge in the U S I mean, that's crazy, but it's real. Yeah. Um, wow. And so it's, that's all in the CFR. There's no constitutional amendment that says we're subject to foreign uh, to foreign laws. What an insane proposition that would be. Could you imagine the the Republican representative standing up and say, well, I've got a proposition for a constitutional amendment 29. 
any felony in any foreign country, uh, Americans are subject to it under the American legal system, but the punishment will be uh, doled out in the way of that one. Let's put that on the books. Everybody would say no, but we let them all say yes uh, without wow. having to say a word. Kind of so crazy. You, you, mentioned, <clears throat> you mentioned about the most effective government being a tyranny. Uh, efficient. I believe the, efficient the most government. <laughs> And, and, and I mean, it's a sort Those of a different words. <laughs> it's sort of a efficient tyranny, uh, efficient, 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 uh, you know, because I, I believe the most efficient government is the family and and, and to be run like a tyranny. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Solved it. So 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 I want to kind of bring us uh, I want to kind of bring us home here. You you're also a husband and father mm-hmm. and you're raising kids. Uh, do, do you guys homeschool as well? Or, or yeah, yep. it's the only way to go. It's the only way to go, but yeah, it's, I uh, guess I, Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say for, for us, um, you know, it's, it's become more ideological, but it didn't start out that way. It's just, uh, when, when our oldest was two, he could mm-hmm. read and write. Um, oh, we didn't, so. we didn't like do anything. I mean, we would, occasionally read him stories uh but he his his brain just comprehends language it it, it always has really well wonder where that unlike, came from unlike fetterman <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't talk about that but unlike fetterman and uh and i i know i could read at a very young age because i could read uh the signs on fast food restaurants uh the, and my parents were always like what the hell but it was it was the same it was the same with our son he was uh he would sit at my computer uh as a as a 2 year old and he would type out words um on That's on like impressive. a word document he, that was he liked doing that and i thought it was hilarious but then we're like wait he's two <laughs> it's gonna be four years uh till he's in kindergarten and he's going to start learning letters and shapes and colors like that's ridiculous uh we, yeah. we can't do that so we started homeschooling him because it's like he'll be he'll be bored to oh, his benefit like yeah from a from an education benefit yes but I'm I'm so glad we did because of what has has come. I mean, I'm a product of a public school. I didn't have super strong feel like I was like, well, public school sucks, but public mm-hmm. school has always just sucked. Uh, mm-hmm. That was always just my opinion. Um, and, you know, we, we would get little indoctrinating things uh, in the in the late 90s, but it, it, it changed. It's changed yeah. so much now. It's like, thank goodness we were accidentally ahead of this wave because uh no now you know all of our all of our kids um have been homeschooled and it's um it's really a blessing we get because we're in a bunch of homeschool groups and homeschool groups tend to share a lot of information but even when you get like new homeschool families in they tend to share what their kids were getting right before they on uh, you know uh, took their kids out yeah it's it's a it's a it's a hellscape it's complete it's a complete disaster and it's interesting because you said it, it didn't start off as an ideological decision, but now that you're in it, it's, it, it's, it was the right way to go. But I guess the question is with all of these things changing with these definitions being warped with the, the, the court system and the legal system and all the things that you're witnessing as a father, how do you feel about the world that your kids are going to be growing up into? And what are their chances? Um, uh, well, I, I think my kids have pretty decent chances. Uh, you never know, right? How any of mm-hmm. this is going to go. Uh, the the parents in in nineteen uh, what 
1930 or no 1920 uh, didn't mm -hmm. have any idea what their what their eighteen year olds would be facing in nineteen thirty eight, right? So you you never know what world uh, you're you're running them into. Um, you you just you know you you trying to raise them and equip them to deal with uh, situations that will come up, and and you hope that the ones that surprise them aren't too grievous. Um, but I I think my kids are very well equipped uh, so far, and and will continue to do so. Um, they're they're. We're, we're very fortunate. Our kids are all very smart um, <laughs> without, without a lot of help from us. Uh, and it, it's lovely to see that because they, they grow and thrive and they, they integrate very well socially into different situations and environments. Um, they understand and learn very quickly, pretty much in any field that they tend to study. Um, and they're, they're just smart and kind and compassionate kids. Uh, you, you always hope to raise a better next generation. And um, for me, that's not too hard because I'm a jerk. But, uh, <laughs> but with, with that, they, they, they seem to be just genuinely good, uh, compassionate kids who are also convicted and they are, um, you know, they're, they're smart and adaptable. So I, I think they've got uh, a, a very good chance. But it's really easy to doomsay and say that everything uh, is bad. And, and there's a lot to be really concerned about, but I am an enemy of a thing called presentism that the, the idea that now is a particularly is the particularly worst time or, or bad time in history um, that, that something is special about the present uh, that is, that needs to be um, concerning. I, I think at all points you, you run into these same types of issues and just different subject That's matter. Cyclical. It's very cyclical. Right. It, I mean, I got friends who send me all the time all this like, you know, biblical prophecy and apocalypse stuff. And and I try to remind them, like, you know, for all we know, it's a dress rehearsal for whatever is to come. I, we, we can't possibly yeah. know that we're in the end times of anything like that. So act like and, you aren't act like and you a are a reminder, simple reminder that Paul um, at the, the beginning of Paul's writings believed that the end times would come before Paul died. Like he, yeah. he believed that yeah. Christ would return within a decade or two. And, uh, and a lot of his writing is, is very urgent in that matter. He's like, don't get, don't get married. You don't have time for that. Like, right. Like if you're going to get married, fine, but like, don't, because you, you don't have time <laughs> for that. Like you're, you're slave. Don't worry about freedom. Uh, start telling your slave master about the return he of Christ. Because, like, a bit though. <laughs> By the time yeah, he was well, writing to the Thessalonians, he was like, Hey guys, uh, you know, you guys might yeah. want to go back to work. You're, you're kind of, you know, you're letting things slip and it's not working that's, out so well. Yeah. Know? That's so. the thing is, is, you know, as he gets older, he, he starts to go, Oh wait, you know, like he, no one knows the time. Like maybe I was way overestimating how fast this would come. And, and, and I think it's always important to contextualize what Paul is saying, um, not to undo or, or contradict him, but just to understand what's being said and, and what some of the motivation might be in that but but he was very concerned for literal salvation of people now because time was running out and so it's it's important to remember when when someone is doomsaying or, or very concerned that the end times are coming now um which is very very uh popular evangelical christian concept like what are you going to do if jesus comes tomorrow it's like well, i don't know i'm probably going <laughs> to wake up uh you know uh take a shower uh, eat some Cheerios, uh, put too much sugar on it, um, call people names on Twitter. And, and then when he shows up, I'll be like, sorry. <laughs> like, like, like but, uh, but yeah, it's, sorry. It, they've, they've always had this, this idea since Christ's death and, and resurrection that, um, that this would be happening. So uh, 
let's not get too carried away and let's let's literally worry about the world that we're we're leaving but but for me i think the most important thing is that good people with good intentions good uh you know moral traditions and and strong roots and strong family roots are the people actually procreating are raising kids because if you want to impact the next generation if you're if you're worried about where the world is going you got to raise people who will be in it cuz we won't you know like we're going to die and uh, mm-hmm. our our grandchildren will be the ones fighting the real fights and we'll be passing the batons to them you you don't pass the baton to your kid you're still alive while your kid uh, hopefully, you know, outside of tragedy, yeah. you're, you're still alive as your kid enters middle age. You know, my dad's still around. Uh, if mm-hmm. he has some, some issue, he can, he can voice his opinion on it still. Um, but as, as my kids get into that mature area, that's when, you know, my, my dad is going to be, uh, aging into the, the real risky areas. He's going to be passing the baton past me to them. And we're going to be doing the same thing Absolutely. to our grandkids. So, but you got to raise the, you got to, you got to make the kids and you got to raise the kids and you got to, insulate them pass those and inoculate on them. pass those values on pass those traditions on so i i'm gonna close i ask a uh, the same question to all my guests it's high trust low context is the name of the show yep who and or what do you trust in this day and age who very little my friend <laughs> um <laughs> No, uh, here's here's what I was, I'm going to say this in a in a slightly different way, but it's meant not to avoid the question, but to answer it. Okay. Um, people people have asked me a lot of times, how do I affect the world? How do I affect my state, my nation? Uh, all these people. How do you reach these people? Especially with social media, you you have this potential for global reach, right? Um, and and I've had the fortune of of having a, a very large footprint over the past uh, couple of years. And, and so people ask me about that. And, and I say this, um, influence the social circle that you have with integrity, uh, no matter how small it is. And that, that of course starts with you and then a partner and then a family unit and then a community. Where, wherever your reach extends, even if it's literally to you, your wife or husband and your children, um, be faithful uh, have integrity and and influence those in the positive way that that you know, uh, and 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 do that, and then it is always possible that your sphere of influence will grow, and you'll have an opportunity to to do the same thing, um, and your message will be amplified even if you are not amplifying it. And with that, I, I'd like to kind of invert that principle. Um, <laughs> your your trust your trust must be in the smallest social circle that you have. Uh, it, it should be with family. So who I trust, um, I trust my wife, even though she's often crazy uh, because women can be insane. Um, I trust my, <laughs> I trust my children, even though, you know, children have a, a natural tendency to attempt to deceive their parents out of uh, fear or trepidation or, or shame. Um, yeah. I trust, I, I trust my parents. Uh, they've always been faithful to me, my grandparents, my siblings, my, um, and then as that circle expands, the trust does decrease necessarily outside of specific individuals. But, uh, in the same way that you should work to influence your closest social circles, you should, uh, you should work to have a network of trustworthy people within it as close to you as possible. And, Absolutely. uh, let, let the distance, let the distance naturally diminish the trust. And eventually your social circle may expand 
to where you can trust over long distances. You can build relationships that that extend beyond uh, physical proximity um, and into into social agreement uh, and social understanding and, and relationships that have demonstrated ability. But it always starts at home. Everything you do starts at home, um, and and focusing on that is is critical. Great answer, man. And and speaking of trusting people over long distances, I. Thank you so much for coming on. You know, uh, we've known each other for a lot of years. Uh, we got busy in all these times, but it's always great to reconnect, especially over something like this. I really awesome, appreciate man. it. You coming on, man. And uh, maybe another time we'll Absolutely. have you back. Up. We can flush out that uh, topic some more because I love the topic of social capital and uh, something we can maybe maybe flush out some more in a future time. So uh, thanks again for coming. Thanks for bringing your horde of people along. I really love it. I, I'm a I'm a fledgling startup uh, new stream. I had my podcast from before. This is uh, this is uh, the extension, the new the new the new version of it. And uh, it always helps to have great guests like yourself come on. I really appreciate it. So thank you again for coming on, man. And uh, I'd love to have you back. My pleasure, dude. Uh, you've always been such a cool, interesting guy with great takes. Um, always been stand up and, uh, and, you know, I, I valued our friendship over the years, even though it's been like from times, uh, obviously we both get very busy and it's like, but every time we get to rubber band and, and interact, it's awesome. So anytime, uh, hit me up, I'd, I'd love to do the show. And, uh, at some point I'll, I'll bring you on mine and, and we can, we can chat and get your story to my audience as well. Guys out I'd there in that. the That'd chat. Fun. Yeah. Guys out there in the chat, please subscribe, uh, check him out, check out his other content watch some videos to come and uh, maybe we can get some other good people on here as well. So spread the word. Well, we got, we uh, got, we got some good guests lined up for the next weeks to come too, man. Uh, ones that might get me tossed off of YouTube. Uh, guys, but, uh, um, one, one thing I want to, I want to let you know, um, uh, which you don't know about El Chaco here. Uh, if, if you're not familiar <laughs> with them, this dude has always pulled guests that you're like, how on earth did you get this guy on a podcast? At all. Um, so I, I would, I will watch uh, with bated breath with uh, who you will <laughs> happen to have on because he's always able to get great guests uh, because, well, he makes good connections and, and, uh, and stuff like that. So keep it's watching. It's my old show, wrestling guys. promoter stuff, man. It's my old wrestling promoter stuff. So, so if, for, for those of you who are watching for the first time, uh, I, the way I likened my show, uh, the most popular podcast in the world is Joe Rogan's podcast. And a third of his podcast episodes are MMA related. A third of them are other comedians. And then a third of them are Im important, you know, really intellectual guests and stuff. So I'm going to keep that third. You're in that third of my, my important intellectual guests. Oh, God. Uh, I am a Catholic, I so I'm going to be comedians. having a lot more. <laughs> yeah, it depends on, depends on which side of the aisle, I guess. Uh, uh, I'm going to be having more because I, I come from the pro wrestling world. Uh, I, I'm going to be having a lot more pro wrestling guests. And, uh, you know, I like to have I, I like the theological discussions. I like having the faith based faith based discussions. Those are are, are going away, you know, and we got to keep them around. You know, they always say, don't talk about politics or religion. Screw that, man. I'm all over both of those. So uh, I really want to thank everybody for joining us tonight. I want to thank you again, Nick Riccata, for coming on to the show. This has been another edition of High Trust Low Context. Thank you for joining us. I'm El Chaco, signing off. Viva Cristo Rey. <laughs>